Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. It's my great pleasure to welcome Harold Holzer. Please welcome Tony Kushner. So I would say um, both of you, I, I don't know if uh, obsessed is the right work, word to talk about your fascination with Abe, Abe Lincoln, but um, I guess I wanted to start by asking each of you about where your interest in Lincoln, um, which has taken so many years of both of your lives now, where that came from. So could you start, start with you? Uh, are we on? Yes. yes. Um, for me, it was a, actually a, a fifth grade assignment in Queens, um, <laughs> in Little Neck, um, Nobody is from Little Neck, surely. <laughs> but uh, our teacher brought, literally brought a hat filled with folded up names and pieces of paper and asked us to pull names out of a hat and write what we called a composition <laughs> on that person. And we were in an experimental school in a, a junior high school, so we had a, an advanced library. And I found a book called The Lincoln Nobody Knows. I picked Lincoln. Did I neglect to say that? Well, I think we figured that, like, luckily it was not Millard Fillmore. My friend friend behind me picked Genghis Khan, (laughs) and he ended up as a dissolute rock and roll promoter. So I think these have very powerful influences. Wow, that's a definitive moment. Yes. So the book was The Lincoln Nobody Knows by Richard Nelson Current, who just passed away at age 100. Wow. It was a big influence on me, and that's how it started. And how about you? Um, well, I grew up in the Deep South, in a uh, town in southwest Louisiana, and uh, my father was a great admirer of Lincoln's, um, who was not a popular figure necessarily in uh, Louisiana, and to this day uh, isn't. I don't know, although a lot of people in Louisiana are going to see the movie, so maybe that'll uh, change, but I still know people who carry a $5 bill, because, I mean, literally, I'm not making that up. Wow. Um, really? And uh, so I was read the second inaugural address at a fairly early age and the Gettysburg Address by my father who liked to read, uh, sort of recite things and uh, memorize things. Um, And uh, uh, had just sort of grown up knowing that Lincoln was an incredibly important figure. Um, I was not in any way a Lincoln obsessive. I had read a couple of things about Lincoln, a couple of books, and uh, the um, Shelby Foote uh, Civil War uh, trilogy. Um, and that was sort of it. And then uh, um, Stephen, after we made Munich, called me up and said, uh, you know, I knew that he was working on a film about Lincoln, and he called up and said, do you want to uh, try to write it? And I said no. Um, uh, I thought I knew enough about Lincoln to know that anybody who wrote the second inaugural address was somebody that I would never really be able to uh, understand uh, somebody operating on a level that's not going to um, easily yield itself uh, to an ordinary person. Uh, and so I, I said that I thought it was probably an impossible uh, job. And then Stephen said, well, we, we're going to get a couple of people together to talk about Lincoln at a hotel room, a conference room in a, at Saint, the St. Regis Hotel. Hmm. And, and we'd like you to come and just listen to them talk. It'll be a couple of historians, Doris Corrins Goodwin, 
uh, will be there and a couple of other people. And I went to the hotel room, this conference room, and it was, uh, I think, 20, 15 or 20 of the country's leading Lincolnists, including Harold and James McPherson and a lot of people whose names sort of uh, crawl by Gabor Borat and Michael Burlingame and... It was overwhelming. And but you unrolled a leather case with a fountain pens and ink. Oh. So we had to speak very slowly. <laughs> we weren't using a computer. I kept all of my notes from that. that I, I write really? fountain pen originally. So, um, we were fascinated. Yeah. Watching you. I mean, never occurs to me that, I mean, it's only embarrassing when they leak and they get all over you, and then you look really like there's something <laughs> seriously wrong with you that you're using them. But otherwise, they're great things to write with. Uh, that, was the, that was the beginning of it. I, I, I was so completely dazzled by what I heard. It was about a five-hour conversation. And two meals, that's what I remember. Right, two meals. great. Um, <laughs> and at the end of that, I, I uh, had a conversation with Doris, who said, you may fail doing this, but you'll never regret any time you spend with Abraham Lincoln. And the, the, this conference had really convinced me that that was true. Uh, so that was really the beginning of it. Now I I'm, I'm, don't know that my obsession can match Harold. Certainly my depth of knowledge isn't remotely comparable, but, the, but I've become what I uh, call a Lincoln logoreic. If you ask me a, a, a question about him, I can't stop talking about him, and I'm sure that'll be a lifelong thing. And I, this is really another question again, again for both of you, and then before we get really specifically into the film, you know, when you think about Lincoln, you think of, of the, the Lincoln Memorial, you think of this larger-than-life figure. Um, there's a description from Philip Roth, um, just a, a little passage in, um, I think, The Plot Against America. He says, Lincoln had the most hallowed possible amalgamation, the face of God and the face of America, all in one. So there's a sense that he's this mythological figure. What both of you have done is, is like deal with finding the real Lincoln, the one who actually lived, getting a sense of how he actually spoke and thought. So I'd love to hear about how you, know, how you find the real Lincoln. I mean, he, yeah. Well, you start, for, you start with the fact, I mean, just in terms of how Tony and, and Steven Spielberg approached it, that he, in his time, he was not the figure on Mount Rushmore or the Lincoln Memorial. He was very controversial. He was extraordinarily approachable, even in an era when presidents were approachable. I mean, people could line up um, outside his office two days a week, wait online, and have an audience with the President of the United States. After he delivered the second inaugural address that you saw in that beautiful um, uh, final scene, he went back to the White House and the doors were thrown open, and the public just came in to greet him. Um, So he was considered actually not only approachable, but um, undignifiedly so in his time. And then if you add to that the fact that he was an extremely calculating and smart politician. Uh, by the way, who's right, if you read the reviews of his writing at the day, of the, uh, in the day, while people like Harriet Beecher Stowe were very impressed and said his, his words should be written in letters of gold, mm. there were people who thought that the kind of syllogistic style that he used was um, improper for a president. So it was too too colloquial, above, yeah. too colloquial, too colloquial. Yeah, um, not legalistic enough for a chief magistrate. Wow. So I think, I mean, Tony reached down to the to the 19th century rather than thinking of him as the figure on the pedestal, and I think that's what surprised people and and uh, aroused the kind of interest that this film is is arousing because. 
this is the milieu is the mid 19th century. You see the politics and you see the personalities and you see the intimacy of a White House that is open to people calling about a toll road. There are people who call about who come to call about toll roads. So we think I have to think of Lincoln as he was then, and it's a whole different thing. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'll add to that is that, um, you know, we felt that it was important to try and, and get as close to who this person uh, actually was and what it might feel like to be in the same room with him. But um, we didn't feel that our job was at any point, and I think in this we were taking our lead from uh, the people that we met with in that hotel room in 2006, uh, the scholars, uh, that the, the job of understanding him wasn't the same thing as, de- as debunking uh, the myth or proving that uh, here was yet another idol with feet of clay or somebody right. who was really unworthy of admiration. It's been one of the interesting things about uh, the response to the movie uh, from the very uh, first audiences and the first journalists that saw it is a kind of nervousness about being openly admiring of a, of a great historical figure as if all historical uh, figures who are held up for admiration must actually be charlatans that are waiting for someone to, to kind of cynical, you know, to, to expose the, the sort of ugly truth about. And, and uh, he was an, a genuinely, immensely admirable figure. And uh, I, I think that, you know, the, the, I've read a lot of books about Lincoln now. And and the thing that all the really good ones have in common uh, is that everyone who writes them, um, without trying to gloss over any of the contradictions or the uh, difficulties in his personality or the mistakes that he made, um, stand appropriately in awe at the uh, at the conclusion, uh, because you're looking at somebody who, like Shakespeare, like Mozart, like Michelangelo. Uh, like George Eliot, who we were talking about, just you know, is is worthy of, uh, of 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 a kind of an awestruck admiration, and I think we can't be afraid of that. There are some people who are uh, like that, and you know, thank God. So what you're doing in this film, though, is you know, when, when we, we, I think all of us as students had this sense that Lincoln was a great orator, and a lot of the great greatness came in his ideas and his use of language. You are focusing on the the machinations of politics and the strategy and, and, you know, the political genius. And, you know, we're actually all, you know, in observing the Obama presidency, we saw somebody who came in with great rhetorical skill, and we've been seeing how he's been dealing with the reality of getting things done or not getting things done. Um, and it's been, you know, very interesting the time we're going through right now. But I'm just wondering if you could talk about sort of how you sort of focused in on this, because that's what this film, you know, that's the drama of this film. Yeah, well, I mean, again, the 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 history of of the Lincoln administration is necessarily a political history, and uh, there's much that can be said. I mean, I don't think there's any um, uh, field of human inquiry that is completely uh, alien to you know the examination of politics, but uh, you know, psychology and theology and philosophy are all knit up in it. But it's absolutely um, in its own right. Uh, I mean, it's the thing that Emerson says. It's the it's the the movement of the soul uh, illustrated in power. It's a it's a it's an extraordinarily interesting democracy is an interesting phenomenon, and uh, so 
I, I think that from the beginning, it was the, the place that we wanted to um, uh, concentrate. And also because, you know, while Stephen definitely curbed any of my sort of editorializing impulses, uh, uh, you know, I've felt for a long time now that the abandonment by progressive people of uh, electoral democracy as a potential source of, uh, of, pro of progress and even radical change uh, has been a catastrophe for this country and for the planet. And that, that uh, a reinvestment in, in a belief in democratic processes uh, is, is essential. And it seemed to me in, in what I was reading um, about the Lincoln administration that it was, among other things, about people who had you know, uh, I mean, everyone from uh, the members of the federal government to the people dying in the uh, in the in in battle uh, uh, to the whole country, um, slave and free. That there was a belief in the possibility. I mean, democracy was at that point still kind of a rat. What he calls it in the Gettysburg Address, a proposition uh, that's you know a, a new idea that needs to be proved, and that, that's in a way what they were doing. You know, of all the films in in the history of film, the more famous ones, you're going to, I haven't said this to you yet, but you may find this bizarre. <laughs> this, this film reminds me of Casablanca. I'll tell you why. Casablanca was released right after the, the American... After Pearl Harbor. Ab, I mean, no, 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 after well, Casablanca. After, the, after Roosevelt met at Casablanca for a summit meeting, no one ever heard of Casablanca. All of a sudden, it was the biggest story in the world, and the movie came out. This movie has come out uh, to talk about the, the equality cliff at the time that we're talking about the fiscal cliff. And it's an extraordinary moment where we are watching, uh, on, on the one hand, we're watching a president trying to deal with a lame duck Congress, even though the next Congress... And the next House and the next Senate will be more Democratic because he's got the sequester and he's got to do something by December 31st. Lincoln didn't have a, sequ a sequestration bill, but he decided because of the approach of peace that he had tactically a moment, a very narrow window to codify freedom in this country. And it's ex the parallels are extraordinary. They're disturbing and yet they're very hopeful. And if you heard the news today, there's more on the fiscal cliff as well. So maybe... and. You should tell everybody what's happening tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be the moment that the Senate gets ready to make a deal, right? Well, see, we're, we're taking the movie to show at the invitation of Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell. Uh, we're, uh, <laughs> we're uh, you know, I have to try and be Lincolnian about this. Um, we're, we're going to show it at the U.S. Senate. Um, uh, we showed it at the White House about three weeks ago, and uh, and, and the Senate is going to watch the movie. I'm told that the only <laughs> resolution that the Senate has passed in this entire term, this is the truth, is a resolution to allow snacks at the screening. <laughs> Your tax dollars at work. Well, there is action, yeah. God. <laughs> Who says they don't pass any legislation? It's well, here a, you have the Republicans as good guys in this film. So. Yeah, yeah, which was a, a kind of, we were worried about how easy that that, that switch was going to be for, right. for people to make. Nobody seems to have had too much uh, trouble understanding it. It's you know, and and it's a fascinating story that somebody needs to really pull to you know how right how this this uh, complete uh, switch. Not just that the Republicans now occupy the right and the Democrats now occupy the left, but that uh, or left center, 
But the Democrats occupy left center, and, and the Republicans, as was the case with the Democrats, uh, even before the secession crisis, occupied not right center, which is what you need if you have a two-party uh, democracy, but the extreme right, and that the, uh, the center had been completely extirpated. Yeah. Uh, it was impossible for somebody like Stephen Douglas, who was essentially a moderate, to run as a moderate, uh, and uh, they, they abolished the center in exactly the way the Republican Party has done now, and it doesn't work. You can't have a two-party democracy where one party has basically given up uh, being a big tent parliamentary. Uh, and yet historiographically, the African-American vote stayed with the Republican Party until Roosevelt's second term. And how did he change things? He hired Robert E. Sherwood, the Tony Kushner of his day, in terms of Lincoln, <laughs> to write his speeches. And put Lincoln in all the speeches about yeah, Lincoln had confronting the, the, the fascist threat. No, it's, I mean, it, I, when I was in Louisiana, uh, my, the first time I ever got involved in politics was the McGovern campaign. I was in high school. And uh, uh, the McGovern committee in Lake Charles, Louisiana, was me and two nuns. Were, uh, <laughs> but we had, and we had, you know, absolutely no money. So we got on the phone and we called these guys who were old Democrat, old South Democrat, Dixiecrats, bold weevils. They were racist horrors. And they would never, I think, actually, I don't know if they actually went into the booth and voted for McGovern, but they were Democrats. And they were never, ever going to support Richard Nixon because he was a Republican, and the Republicans were the party of Lincoln. So they were still, in 1972, clinging. And it was <laughs> the Southern the strategy. Was the but you've been unduly harsh to your own state because Lincoln's last speech was about African-American voting rights, and it was specifically about Louisiana. And right. John Wilkes Booth was in the crowd and yes. said that's the last speech he'll ever make. Right. Well, he mentions wow. the speech in the movie. <laughs> yeah. But he's really talking about New Orleans because the rest of Louisiana yeah, yeah. was still kind of yeah. all over the place. And Although New Orleans was – I mean, they had not voted for African-American voting rights, but he wanted Governor Hahn to reconsider. Right. And, and right. they would. I want to ask you about the, the uh, language in the film. I mean, it's so much a movie about language, about thought in action. But uh, very specifically, you use th just some of the phrases and words that you use. It must have been great pleasure for you to use phrases like flub dubs and Fildell instead of Philadelphia. Um, I, I understand that grousel might be a word that you invented. Uh, yeah, I think I made but it. But it sounded right. It sounded good. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I, um, I I um I used the Oxford English Dictionary uh, uh -huh. to make sure. I really wanted to make sure that there was nothing. I think there were a couple of places where I had to cheat, especially I think left and right was at least they were used but they weren't used in exactly the same I mean they were they anyway. Uh, I think there were a couple of places where I had to cheat a little bit because there was no other way to get a modern audience to understand. But for the most part I I checked every word that even like maybe instead of perhaps um, to, because the OED is a word museum, and it'll show right. you when the word is. We think the word was first used in English, the date of it, and the context. In so which perhaps it was used. would have been used at the time. Perhaps, of maybe. Yeah, maybe. I forget, but I think maybe it was not. Uh, maybe, but not maybe. So, uh, uh, so I was really care, uh, but I really I loved it. I, I thought it was a lot of fun to write because of the the words, but also the. Um, complexity of sentence construction and the dependent clauses and that uh, the, the people could really speak that way. And, of course, you started writing this when, while George Bush was president. So. Yes. Yeah, so well, that yeah, <laughs> so I was inspired by his yeah, uh, that <laughs> astonishing facility with the English language. He's like, but well, some of the words you use, I mean, Phil Dell, 
was more than you're looking at OED, right? Because yeah. Lincoln used that word right. in, no, a there limerick, was in a dog roll, that piece of dog roll. Yes, that he wrote. And, uh, and Daniel called me at one point and said, uh, midway before we started <laughs> filming, between him saying yes, that he would play Lincoln, and we had a year when he was working on it, and he called me and said, I'd like you to find some place in the script where I can use the word disenthrall, which yeah. Lincoln used. And, and so that was fun. I had to sort of like look through the script and find a place to... The, so I, one of the words that you have Thaddeus Stevens use, I haven't told you about this either, is pertinacious, which I love. And I thought, I don't know, where did he get it? Must be right. He must have looked in the OED. So two weeks ago, I was writing this very quick piece for a Civil War magazine on Thaddeus Stevens. And I thumbed through a book that I haven't looked at in 10 years and found a debate that Stevens was conducting on the floor of the House about the 13th Amendment. And he used the word pertinacious. pertinacious yeah. So my hat's off to you. <laughs> I mean, you weren't just looking at OED. So, <laughs> I, I'm going to ask, I have one question for each of you, then we're going to open it up to the audience. Um, and actually, this sort of leads into that. You're uh, thinking about the historical accuracy. This portray- Daniel Day-Lewis is now going to essentially be Lincoln in many people's minds. Um, and it would be hard to think of, I can't imagine who the next choice would be. It, you know, and what an amazing performance. Justin Bieber in 20 years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is going to be a long reign. Okay, well, this, this worked out well then instead. So, um, but, so what is it like for a historian to be seeing, I mean, essentially this will be the record. I mean, this will be what people think of when they think of how, how did Lincoln talk, how did he move, how did he think, what did he do? I mean, for, I don't know a historian who has not seen this Lincoln and felt that he was with Lincoln for the first time. Hmm. There's so much depth and so much withheld that's mysterious, but somehow tangible in this interpretation. It's just staggering. And it, most of the historians I know have seen it two or three times to try to get closer to it. And their response mirrors the response people had to Lincoln, which was that there was so much grasp all of it. And yet it's, it's real. It's this combination of, of homespun, um, self-made, yeah. dynamic, and, and political genius and literary genius. And and I I thought it was just enthralling and un, unforgettable as you say, yeah. and the Lincoln for the millennium. And what I wanted to ask you was um, I I how you focused on this specific story because the film is just called Lincoln, but you made I think this really brilliant choice, which in hindsight seems like the perfectly natural thing to do, but to focus on just this period in his final year, just these few months. Um, well, it really actually is just the month of January. I mean, it, yeah. the original right. screenplay that I, when I finally finished a beginning, middle, and end screenplay was 500 pages long, and it was <laughs> uh, January, February, March, and April. Uh, and then we filmed the first quarter of it, basically. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's what you look for. It's, a, it's a, a story that hasn't been told very often. Most people don't know about this slightly out-of-the-way fight behind the scenes in a lame duck session of Congress to get it through the House, uh, to get the amendment through the House. Uh, and in fact, most people don't realize that there was, a, you know, there, there was an amendment to end slavery. We just actually realized today is Stephen's birthday, and today is the day that Seward and, uh, got the ratification, the last ratification letter from whatever state was the final state to ratify it. So on Stephen's birthday, the 13th Amendment went into effect. Oh, yeah. Sort of cool. But it was like... Um, you know, it was. A, it seemed like a, a a story that that wasn't well known, that was genuinely significant, um, uh, because it's the legal end of slavery in America, and 
and a story that happened to a degree behind the scenes, which for uh, uh, creators of historical fiction as opposed to history, as opposed to documentary, is, is you know, sort of red meat. I mean, what you yeah. want is to find something where you have room to invent and explore. Um, and so I think it, it just it's a sort of slowly emerged as the as the right story tell. I also really like it that you know one of the possible dangers of making a movie about Lincoln is that you show everybody that, that there was this guy who was not only one of the great political strategists of all time and and a genuinely great and significant political thinker and unfairly one of the great writers living at an age when there were five or six you know genuine literary geniuses roaming around. Um, you know, and he got shot in April of 1865, so we're really screwed now because we don't have Abraham Lincoln. And I like that this movie makes also a hero out of one of the least popular organs of government in human history, the House of Representatives. I think it's, <laughs> you know, we have to remember that the House of Representatives, for all of its failings and its sort of unattractive uh, uh, current... Uh, Complexion is uh, political complexion is is uh, is a body that's also passed some of the most important legislation in, in human history. Yeah. So. But it of course, actually was a I mean, it was a widely reported story at the time, and people knew that it was consequential. I think it's historians who have fallen down on this story that you've rescued because there's only one book about the Thirteenth Amendment. Yeah, um, and it's people knew that that the Emancipation Proclamation might not be a permanent. Or a broad enough solution to the to the freedom issue at the time. If you read the newspaper, so that's why it's crucial. It's really good that you did this and focused <laughs> on that. Okay, so let's open it up now. Raise your hand, and I'll, I can repeat questions to make sure everybody hears. So let's just start right here. So he's saying, that, yeah, the film had a lot of echoes of what's going on now in terms of the discussion about, about gay marriage. Was this something that you consciously had in mind? while you? you no, know, I don't, I mean, I, I meant what I said earlier. There were moments when I got, tried to seize little opportunities to editorialize, <laughs> and Stephen was really good about saying, no, get rid of that. Um, I had a whole little speech that Thaddeus Stevens, I made up. Thaddeus, I know that I remember reading that. Uh, he was particularly contemptuous of the Tenth Amendment. So during the whole Tea Party thing, when they were all going around reading the, I just heard McCain in this extraordinary thing with um, uh, uh, Piers, what's his face, Piers Morgan, oh, Piers Morgan. where uh, Lindsey Graham, thank you very much, says that we should all go see Lincoln because it supports his. Uh, it's a good movie that supports his argument against same-sex marriage, um, <laughs> which on so many levels, uh, <laughs> Mr. Graham is interesting. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, girl. Um, but uh, now the 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 language I think in the you know it's pulled from a lot of different places, but it's all pulled from the from the uh, uh, argument in and around the issue of abolishing slavery, and so it's it's true to the time. The arguments tend to be, I mean, the states, you know, states' rights as a kind of like cover for all sorts of ho- horrible, you know, uh, bigotry and an unwillingness to look at the world as it actually is, and so on. I mean, this has been going on since, you know, the country began, and so uh, I, those echoes, I think, are, are earned. They're not. They're not 
inserted, and Stephen made me cut the speech about what a piece of incredibly drecky legal writing the Tenth Amendment is and how it should never have been. And so. <laughs> okay, up here. We'll, okay. So will there be a chance to read that 500-page script? I mean, we talked uh, originally when I finished it. Uh, you know, I was sure that, the, that what Stephen was going to film was going to be uh, the last 240 pages, which was link, it's a, March, 18th, March 18th, 1865, to the assassination. It's that. Part, it's the longest time Lincoln spent out of from March 18th to April 10th when he left Washington and went down at Grant's invitation to City Point in, in, on the James River and was present at the end of the war as the war was ending. Almost. You know, almost the at the end. Well, not yes. I mean, he was he went on to the Richmond, boat. Yeah. But, you know, in, in April 4th, April 4th, he went on his son's 11th, uh, 12th birthday, went to Richmond with his son and walked through the city. It was a day after it had fallen. And, and uh, those scenes of Lincoln watching the siege at of Petersburg and riding across the battlefield is the only thing that's left of that. And it's so cinematic in addition to everything else. And it's also like really the, mar the walk through Richmond is, I think, the most dramatic moment in all of presidential history. It's just, it's unbelievable that he did that and what happened in Richmond. So I thought for sure that's what the movie was going to be. So when I sent Stephen the original 500-page uh, thing, uh, I said, you know, I'm sorry it's so long, and uh, <laughs> I think you're going to want to film the last part, but pay attention to the first part, because I think it's f great, and then uh, I think it could be an interesting movie, and, and he uh, read it and called back and said, that's my favorite part, the first part, and uh, I, I, uh, I don't know, I mean... The only way I would ever want to make anything about Abraham Lincoln uh, again would be if Stephen directed it and Daniel played Lincoln. I don't. I really don't think. I don't think that anybody can. I mean, he's just one of those actors, and it's not fair. I mean, it's also it's <laughs> ridiculous that he actually looks like Abraham Lincoln. That's the when we met him in Ireland the first time. Stephen took a picture on his iPhone when Daniel was standing against a window in a in a pub. And it was sort of backlit, so it was just the silhouette, and it looks like a cutout of. So it's like, you know, <laughs> look in your mirror, God is telling you something. Uh, but he's also one of those actors who I think is what Harold was talking about. Um, like Max von Sydow could do it, Vanessa Redgrave can do it. Uh, it's not, I mean, Daniel is an immensely great actor. He also is just one of those people that brings this other quality of, of something vaster than. than, than an individual human, uh, some sort of aura that comes with him. And it's true in most of his films. He's, it's just, it's, so you can't fake that or make that on, you know, CGI that. So it, it, uh, I don't think I'd ever want to do it unless they'll play it. My suspicion is that Daniel won't ever want to, you know, as I just read this great quote uh, when they asked uh, Auden, uh, they were going to retranslate the, the Bible, <laughs> get rid of the King James Bible and translate, do a new translation of the Bible, and they asked uh, Auden what he thought, and he said, "Why well, spit on your luck?" So I sort of <laughs> felt like we we did okay this time, and we'll just sort of 
leave it at that. Well, um, this fellow wants you to do his publish it, though. I don't own it, so you have to, you know, DreamWorks, I'm a screenwriter, not a playwright <laughs> for this, so I, if I was a playwright, I would own it, and I'd probably publish it, but I don't own it, so we'll see what happens. The, the, this screenplay will be published soon, but the, the longer thing, I don't know. Um, I'd like <laughs> to see some version of it published at some point, because I'm I'd like to see the Richmond scene. Well, the Richmond stuff is, is, to, yeah, is a lot of fun to do. Okay, over here. So there are many photographs of Lincoln, but how did, how did you get the, um, the nuances of how Lincoln actually moved? I know the research that was done by Tony and by Daniel Day-Lewis. There are period descriptions from his contemporaries about the walk, for example, and the voice, mostly from Lincoln's law partner, William Herndon. Hmm. And, you know, I've read these descriptions from different people about how he sort of was, they said, loose-jointed. He would pick up his entire size 16 boot at once and then bring it down as he walked rather than walking heel to toe, which if you think about it, most people walk, or men who are not wearing heels, walk heel to toe. I, I, it's uncanny that he got it, that he looked like a gigantically tall person who had this walk and the voice, also descriptions of a high-pitched voice but a piercing one, you know, not a squeaky one because he was heard, as you saw in, this, in the second inaugural speech. Um, that has been filmed by so many people, television and... Uh, and film, and beautifully, but always mistakenly, the actors whisper it because the words are almost this so lyrical, but they're they're almost biblical. And but Lincoln was trying to be heard to fifteen thousand people that day <laughs> without amplification. And Daniel Day Lewis intuited, or the director intuited, he had a shout out with malice toward none, and still make it resonate as a prayerful coda. And he did all that, and Daniel Day-Lewis did all that. Yeah, the other thing that's, I think, astonishing about that is that, I mean, because the uh, second inaugural, which I think is the greatest political speech ever, uh, I mean, the first part of it really is almost like modernist writing. It's so spare, and then it goes into these visionary uh, last uh, three paragraphs. But the uh, Daniel also, in addition to getting that it had to be boomed out, uh, got that Lincoln was somebody who, and this was just actor intuition, it's something that Daniel decided on his own, that Lincoln went to the theater every chance he could get. He loved watching plays. And so the gestures that he's using uh, during the delivery of the speech, which took both Stephen and me completely by surprise when we filmed it, uh, we had no idea he was going to do it, are 19th century stage, you know, there are books of like when you're, when you're, uh, denouncing a tyrant, you wave your right, you know. Yeah. And he does that, and he actually, because he's so unbelievably <laughs> great, does it as a not particularly talented stage actor. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great politician imitating a stage Did actor. Did you know that Lincoln, as a child, had a book with just those gestures? With those gestures, I remember yeah. reading that, yeah. Long-haired, European-looking kids declaiming, this is, when you're telling the truth, you do this. And right. It was a great... Well, and it's, I think it's just a brilliant intuition. Of course, these, these speeches were, and they do invite, because of the purity of the language, they invite a kind of, um, quiet, you know, that sort of, or square, but, but, you know, it wouldn't have been that. It and people been, said at the time that his gestures, he wasn't a great gesture. He didn't gesture constantly the way a lot of 19th century orators did. But his gestures were just off a tick from the meter of the, is, it's like a jazz singer singing a little behind the beat. 
And, P- and he did that too. Yeah. He wasn't quite, the gestures didn't quite match. Yeah. Could you say a little bit about, about Spielberg working with the language? And I don't know if you were on the set all the time. The time. Uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, we think of, it's a little simplistic to say, but we think of him working with images and he's working with, with words. I mean, it's just thrilling to see something like the scene of Lincoln talking about this whole issue about states' rights and the Emancipation Proclamation. And it just goes on and, and it's, it's gripping drama. But what was it like sort of? from the directing standpoint. Well, I mean, like I said, I gave him uh, several hundred pages of, you know, <laughs> guys in the field and people on horseback and, you know, <laughs> boats on giant wagon wheels being pulled across. I mean, there's all that sort of imagey stuff. And uh, what he really loved doing in this was filming. It's the first, he told me the day that we filmed it, that the fight between Lincoln and Mary is the first domestic dispute he's ever filmed in all of his movies. <laughs> The first time really? he's shown, he really? filmed the scene with the hu- he uh. was terrified that day, which is why I really love him and why I love working with him because you know he doesn't have to do things that are scary and difficult. And I know he was scared every single day of filming because it was always something that he didn't really know exactly how to do. I saw him on the set before he shoots. He walks around with the script and sort of thinks angles and stuff. And I watched him do it on Munich where there are some very wonderful, tricky camera moves that I think he does better than almost anybody that's ever lived. And he would work out those things with Lincoln and then not shoot any of them. He would just abandon them. And it stayed in this incredibly restrained, simple thing. And, you know, I think that it's an amazing thing that at the end of this very talky movie, you sit down at that table at the Hampton Roads conference and you listen to these guys talk about how many states are going to ratify and he never once suggested cutting it. He just and he loved it. He loved just sitting there and listening to these guys talk. Yeah. So I think it's. Uh, I mean, I I got really lucky. He really enjoyed it. In the domestic scene, the part that I thought was most real, just not that the other part was unreal. How do you convey Lincoln's remoteness in this marriage? The thing that really gnawed at Mary, who was so into the moment and so emotional and so talkative and what you what you and Spielberg did is in the middle of the argument someone knocks at the door Mary turns and says don't don't answer it and the next thing you th- see is the door closing and he's gone and that's the story of their marriage he, he was gone emotionally or physically and when they were young he was on the road six months a year and when things got tough he got going out. Well, and very often got left after he keyed her up yeah. I mean, one thing that I was stunned by when I was writing the full version of the, the, the big... Uh, on March 18th, when they left Washington to go down to City Point, there was a storm that was described in the papers as a hurricane. It was apparently just a terrible tempest. And they got on the bat, uh, this little sort of side-wheel steamer, and left um, <laughs> the Sixth Street docks and were going down. And Mary had uh, a serious brain injury at the eve of the Battle of Gettysburg when her uh, car- the character they were both then slammed into a broke... Anyway... Uh, an assassination attempt. It was an assassination attempt, and, and uh, she was also very prone to seasickness, and she so was, was he. Uh, deathly ill. And uh, he came into her cabin the first night of the storm, I think, and said, I just had a dream that the White House burned down, and you and Tad were inside, and I couldn't get in to save you, so now have a good night, and he left. <laughs> <laughs> she was also going down. They were going to see Robert in uniform for the first time because he was down at City Point, and she was a mess. And, uh, and, uh, and he came in, and as he frequently did, I think, and, and sort of 
wound her up and then Especially left her. He loved telling her about dreams where he would be dead. Yes. Or she would be dead. And, and, then, and then would leave her, because I think that was her job in the marriage, was to sort of carry this horrible load of, uh, of distress, um, to which he remained uh, to some degree, you know, immune or oblivious. And, uh, and, and I, you know, I think it's a, it's a marriage where there's a division of labor like that, which I think has left her with a very unfair reputation as a, as a kind of crazy person and this terrible drag on him. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I've always believed, and, and from uh, all the reading that I've done, that, that it was a genuine marriage and that they really both needed each other very, very much. Well, so. And when they were married, he certainly needed her because she was from a different social class and great political connections and... And they new, shared and, love of poetry and yeah. child-rearing ideas. And they, she knew from the day, she, the minute she met him, that he was, as she said, the, the, you know, the greatest man of his era and he was going to be president yeah. of the United States. Mm-hmm. So. And she was going to be the first lady. And she was going to be, right. <laughs> okay, right here. So if you could talk about the difference between writing a screenplay and writing a play for, for a stage. Well, you know, the, um, the, I mean, the main difference is, is property relations. It's, it's I own the copyright to my plays. It's why playwrights can't unionize um, because we, we'd be in violation of antitrust laws passed by a Republican at the turn of the century. Um, <laughs> uh, um, but uh, I own my words. When I'm a screenwriter, I am a wage slave for, uh, you know, a studio. I mean, you, you, I, and which is why screenwriters have this wonderful union, which is why I have health insurance. Um, and uh, uh, it changes your relation. It's a, I mean, I used to say this all the time before I'd written a screenplay because I assumed since I've read Marx that this must be true. And it is true. <laughs> I just didn't know that it was true until I started doing it. It changes your relationship to the language, you, uh, to the words. You're, you're not even... Sometimes we say you're writing the recipe, not baking the cake, but you're not even actually writing the recipe. You're writing a suggestion for a possible approach to the cake, which may wind up being, you know, I mean, with, with, with Lincoln, I was protected because the language was too complicated for there to be a lot of horsing around with it. You, you kind of, if you went off text too much, you could get lost, and you have to improvise in 19th century talk, which a lot of actors wouldn't. So people actually, and we also used a lot of stage actors, so they really came having memorized their, uh, uh, memorized lines as opposed to, I'll sort of, it's something generally in this area. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that, that the, anyway, it's the, 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 Responsibility shifts, um, and in a way that's pleasurable. Uh, it's it's it, when you're a playwright, you create the world. And when every when the actors get together at the beginning with the director, they don't know each other. They have to create in seven or eight weeks, which is mad amount of time, the semblance of a world out of nothing. And the only thing they have to go on is the text. So you have this, you sort of create the Bible that they're, I mean, they're going to have to relate to the text the way we relate to the Constitution or, you know, uh, to, to the Bible. And that's pleasurable because I, we're all power junkies, but it's also a burden. And it's kind of nice to know that 
if you're in the hands of a director that you trust, and I'm working with Stephen or with Mike Nichols, I've been very lucky that I've been with people that I really... Also, I know nothing about making... I mean, the first time I was ever on a film set was with, uh, with Angels in America. I had no idea. I still barely know what any of that stuff is, except that I'm bad with machinery and I couldn't do any of it. <laughs> so I really enjoy that uh, aspect of it, and I like collaborating. I like when I'm working with somebody who will let me argue for something and not necessarily give it to me, but at least let there be a lot of discussion. And Stephen is uh, amazing that way. I really enjoy the collaborative process. And I think he's really one of the great storytellers. I mean, they're kind of a narrative genius on the level of Dickens. I mean, it's like just this kind of incredible ability to uh, involve an audience in narrative that no one ever gets lost in. And it's, it's a kind of a democratic ethical principle with him. And I, and I admire it. And I'm excited to be part of that. And, you know, so I'm sort of in a way I'm saying I'm a big bottom. But I really like being that. I mean, I like being, you know, sort of working for him. Um, and that's, that's, I think, probably the big, uh, uh, you know, I also think that screenwriting and filmmaking is more like writing, and I've never written a novel, but I imagine that these are actually um, forms that rely on narrative more than playwriting does. It's good to have a good story in a play, but plays are really about the dialectics. They're really about the argument, not about a sequence of events and uh, and playwrights I think are not generally especially good at constructing narrative I think we're better at constructing a conflict uh, and uh, and I think filmmaking for a variety of reasons because of the enormous intimacy of it and it's sort of overwhelming closeness and heat and power um, like a novel it has this very personal relationship theater is much more chilly and distant you know you have to do a lot of tricks to heat up the room but it never gets as hot as it gets in a film or if you're alone with a really great novel and i think that, that that's a, a a difference as well okay we we actually just have a few minutes left so i just want to um have a just ask you one more thing which is what you you're going to the senate tomorrow with this film but i'm just wondering sort of what your hopes are with this film in terms of how it plays out in, in the political world. You know, we're thinking with um, the issue of gun control is now the issue of, of the day, and there's a question of how, you know, how brave are politicians going to be? I mean, is there going to be change? Um, so I'm just wondering what you are hoping that the impact of this film will be. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. I think, I think people are yearning for leadership and confronting, maybe not in the Senate particularly, where it now takes 60 votes to do anything that wasn't the case and you didn't need a, a, a three-fifths vote for every vote that came up in the Senate. But there is this, I feel, and you know, I was in politics as a press guy for a long time before I worked at the Metropolitan Museum. I feel this surge of real um, um, uh, feeling for a need for some action. And I think, I mean, I, I would like to see Democrats and Republicans standing up and cheering and then saying, if they could do this. And what you forget is the, the endemic, deep-seated racism that was pervasive in white America among elected officials. If they could do this then, why are we here if we don't do something now? 
That's what I'd like to see. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely. You know, I feel as a writer that it's kind of a bad idea for uh, writers. Uh, certainly, for, I feel this about playwrights. I don't know about filmmakers, but I feel this about playwrights that you shouldn't write anything thinking that it's going to have a direct impact on the world. I think that if you want to have a direct impact on the world, you have to be an activist, uh, a citizen, uh, an engaged citizen. That's your one avenue. What you do is on your day job is maybe going to have a more or less direct impact, but I think that the power of art is not a direct power. I think it's an indirect power. It has a power. It has a political force, but it's not, it's not writing an op-ed column um, or, you know, or, or organizing or fundraising or voting. Those things are those things, and there's no substitute for them. Um, so I tend to think that when you've done something that hits a nerve, as I feel in a way this film has done, um, uh, that you, the way to think about it, and it's probably the most uh, truthful way to think about it, is that you're part of something that is happening all around you and that you've been part of it. I mean, I had uh, one of the great blessings of working on this movie has been that I've been working on a movie about Abraham Lincoln during the four years of the Obama administration. And uh, I don't say that uh, Barack Obama is a president uh, you know, exactly comparable to, Robert, uh, to Abraham Lincoln, but I think that Obama is a great president and a student of lincoln and a student of lincoln and and you know uh um i think a a really extraordinary one of those sort of providential figures that i believe this and uh you know and i think that also the reason that these providential figures show up has less to do with providence than it has to do with a kind of um uh, a, a general need um and a and a and a shift and i believe that we are shifting as a country uh, regaining some of the ground that we lost to the Reagan counter-revolution. It's taken a very, very long time for it to run, uh, hopefully, really seriously run its course. And it's not, it's not gone yet. It's still terrifyingly uh, powerful and present. But, so I'd like to believe that when I look back on this, uh, that, it, that it will prove to have been part of, of, a, of, a, of a transformative moment in our uh, country's history, because I think that Without that transformation, where I think without any hyperbole, uh, the country and the world is in really terrible, terrible trouble. So um, I'm, I'm hoping that what we're all sensing, I mean, you know, it would be so much better if it didn't take what happened this weekend to, but, you know, it's what Benjamin says, history moves forward over a, a, a mountain of disaster and, and bloodshed and catastrophe. The Civil War is no exception to that, certainly. So, right. you know, I think that things are, are, are beginning to really seriously change, and this re-election uh, uh, delivered the news forcefully, not only to, to progressive people, but to conservative yeah. and reactionary people as well. And now we're all trying to adjust to that. Well, it'll be an interesting screening tomorrow, I'm sure. And, um, but it's a, uh, beyond all that, it's a great movie. And uh, congratulations. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.